welcome to The Feminist Shift. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode. Thank you for tuning in. We're doing things a little differently this time around and for the rest of the summer. Moving forward for the next couple of months, we will be featuring recordings from workshops that we have hosted uh, that you are also invited to. Uh, So stay tuned to our social media channels. So this is all part of our Network of Neighbors uh, intervention training program, but it's not just the program. We also have workshops that coincide with it. And those are the workshops that you will be hearing on this podcast. So today is our first recording and it is with Faye Johnstone talking about gender-based violence as it relates to trans people and the trans community. Uh, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone. Um, Roz Gunn, she, her. Uh, YWC Cambridge is a partner with YWKW in the Feminist Shift. And I'm going to introduce Faye Johnstone, the woman of the hour, um, and someone I am so excited to hear speak again. I've had the pleasure of hearing her speak before. Faye Johnstone, she, they, is a principal consultant with Wisdom to Action and an experienced 2S LGBTQ inclusion educator, writer, and organizer. Over her past three years with Wisdom to Action, Faye has led numerous local and national initiatives focused on 2S LGBTQ inclusion, combating gender-based violence, and strengthening mental health services. As a trans educator and activist, Faye has trained thousands of service providers on 2SLGBTQ inclusion and supported community organizing efforts related to trans rights, ending slut shaming, improving sex ed for Ontario students, and more. So much more. <laughs> Outside of work, Faye can be found drinking too much coffee, hanging out with her four adorable ferrets, or causing problems on Twitter at Faye Johnstone. Take it away, Faye. Awesome. Thank you so much, Roz. And I always hate having my bio read, but thank you for doing it in a way that was fun. So I appreciate the start and the kickoff with that tone. Hello, and first and foremost, thank you so much for having me today. I am absolutely thrilled to be joining you and opening this conversation. Uh, My name is indeed Faye Johnstone. I am a principal consultant with Wisdom to Action. Uh, Wisdom to Action is a 2S LGBTQ owned and operated consulting firm and social enterprise. And we do a lot of work in the world of 2S LGBTQ inclusion and gender-based violence. We also dabble in the youth mental health sector and more broadly in helping organizations better engage communities and people with good experience in every aspect of their work. Before I get too far into it, uh, I do also want to acknowledge the land that I am joining from. Um, So I am based in Ottawa on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. Um, I am a white settler on this land and in this space, and I would challenge myself and I hope all of us throughout this conversation when we talk about issues of gender and sexuality, bring a lens that acknowledges the connection between these systems of violence with the ongoing reality of colonialism on this land. A lot of the time when we talk about diversity and inclusion, We have this tendency to both make everything so smiley and warm and fuzzy that we don't get into the realities of violence, that we don't do justice to the fact that talking about violence, talking about power and privilege is in many ways meant to be uncomfortable. We also often tend to turn communities into boxes and fail to look at the intersections and the connections between different identities different experiences and different systems of violence. And so when I think about gender-based violence, when I think about supporting trans and gender diverse communities, I can't separate that from a commitment to decolonize the work that we do. Because as part of the colonization process, 
we have imposed ideas and understandings and ways of being and knowing around gender and sexuality that have been particularly violent towards the first folks of this land and which have time and again erased indigenous understandings and ways of being around gender and sexuality that have existed long before colonizers came to this space in immense diversity and with great variety. And so I hope throughout our time together today, we can center that component and think again critically about the connections between systems of violence. Now, I wanna start by emphasizing that if you came here for a Trans 101, this is not going to be that workshop. It will still be fun and we'll still learn a lot of cool things, um, but I'm hoping to move beyond a, a talk focused just on what does it mean to be trans or what does it mean to be a member of the 2S LGBTQ plus community and move more towards an intersectional approach that challenges us to question our own privileges and powers and that creates space for complexity and solidarity within our movement. I also want to emphasize that you know, I, I feel like everyone says there are no bad questions. There are questions I won't answer. Um, and those are usually questions related to privacy and things that you probably might not want to ask trans folks. But if you ask that question, I will explain to you why I wouldn't answer it. And how you might frame that question better next time or why that question might not be appropriate to ask in that context. And so throughout our time together, I do actually want to make space for y'all to ask those questions and to ask what questions you have because I also believe that we often don't ask the hard questions and that those hard questions stick in our heads and stop us from moving forward in a good way. And so we do have the Q&A feature. I would encourage folks to use it. I am able to monitor it myself and I know that we've got wonderful folks also keeping an eye on it. And so if I use a term that you don't understand or if you want me to like revisit a concept, I'm throw it in the Q&A and I can't promise I'll get to it in the moment, We'll try to address it as it comes up, if appropriate, or we'll dive into it a bit more at the end. So I know I said this isn't a trans 101, but it is useful to sit down and you know talk through what gender is and means. Because if we don't understand gender, it's hard to understand gender-based violence. Uh, so my favorite thing about gender is that I don't think anybody has a comprehensive or perfect answer to what is gender. And the reason for that is that gender is complicated. And I actually love that it's complicated. Gender as, as a concept isn't something that you can just like reach out and grab. It's not like a physical object and it's not like a little cute carrot toy that I happen to have ready on my table to show you all. Gender is a thing that exists all around us. It is also a very complex interplay of social, cultural, and sociobiological factors. What I mean by that is that we create gender by talking about it. When we use the word man and woman, when we use the term non-binary or gender diverse, all of these things contribute to our social understanding of gender. Now, that's you know all well and good, but we run into issues when we actually start thinking about how gender operates in our spaces. And so I, you know, I think we can think about gender as um, identity, as, as empowerment, but we also have to acknowledge and look at how gender has been deployed as a means of control, marginalization, and oppression. There is nobody on this land, or I haven't met them if they are on this land, um, who grows up without being impacted by gender. Whether you're a young man who is being sent billions of messages about toxic masculinity from a young age, about what your gender expression can look like and what it means to be a man, 
or if you're a young woman who grows up in a world where you get messages about how you have to be quieter or petite or smile all of the time, how you have to worry about your safety in public and how men don't have to worry about not being abusers. And so we live in a space where gender is everywhere. And we also live in a space where we internalize ideas about gender each and every day. I, I wish I could tell you that we live in a world where, you know, we've unpacked gender assumptions to the extent that when I'm in public and I see somebody, it's not my instinct to make a gendered assumption about that person, depending on what clothing they're wearing or how they look like. I wish we lived in that world, but we live in a world that teaches us to make those assumptions. And that feels so innate to us because it's something that's been ingrained in our society and in our upbringing in such significant ways. But we also know that gender is something we have autonomy and agency to change on a social level. So when we see somebody and we make an assumption about their gender, we can actually pause and catch ourselves in that moment and say, well, I actually think it's kind of sexist to think that having long hair means you're a woman and like having slightly larger breasts means you are a particular way or that you are a certain kind of woman. Um, and what I mean by that is you know, we live in a world that inundates us with these messaging messages around what the gender should and could look like. And one of the biggest roles that we can play in resisting gender as an oppressive construct is to pause and catch ourselves at every single assumption. Over time, we can actually reprogram our brains to unpack gender and to in help us in approaching this work and engaging in spaces in a way that allows folks agency and autonomy over their own identities, how they are described in spaces, and how we perceive those. I also like to you know, turn this idea of gender as an oppressive concept on its head a little bit, because gender isn't just one thing. Gender is indeed patriarchy and misogyny and slut shaming and sexual violence. Gender can also be a source of empowerment, of community, of resistance, and liberation. As a trans person, my gender matters to me in a big way. As a trans person, I am surrounded by folks and histories of folks who had to fight to be recognized as the genders they know themselves to be. I am connected to a community of women in my life and in my world who inspire me every single day, who give me guidance and mentor me and teach me how to be a better me in a variety of ways that I couldn't even fully articulate here. Gender is such a weird thing because it is both the source of so much violence in our lives and also something that is so important to many of us and is so integral to our identity. And so we need to be able to juggle the weird cocktail of gender both being really cool and really mean, also just weird. I want to end on, when it comes to gender, I want, I want to wrap this up with the idea of gender as having never been a fixed, rigid, or stable concept. And I love this because I think, you know, we get this theoretically, if we talk about it, if I go around and we say, you know, what it means to be a woman in Canada might be different than what it means to be a woman in England. And the particular experiences of how we think and conceive of gender in 2021 are actually going to be really different from how we thought of and conceived of gender even a decade ago, let alone two or three. And so gender has never and will never be fixed, rigid, or stable. One of the biggest stereotypes we have in gender um, that so many of us, you know, have spent so long resisting is the very simple notion of gendered color, right? You know, pink is always a girl's color and, and blue is always a boy's color. If you hadn't heard this, uh, this is one of my favorite facts about those two colors. 
if you went back a couple decades, if you went into the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, pink and blue didn't have the meaning that they do today. Blue was often, or sorry, pink was often associated with men. It was considered to be the more masculine color because it was a like closer in color to the color of blood, which we had these ideas of being associated with strength and male rigor, or I don't, I don't know what men think about their blood. And then on the other hand, you had blue, which was meant to be more friendly and less threatening and more like, hey, warm and fuzzy. So if you actually take that idea, the fact that 50 years ago, pink and blue meant different things. And if you bring that into the present for a moment and reflect on how deeply ingrained it feels, to me, probably to most of y'all, to see the color pink, if it's on a baby, you think girl. And if it's on a boy, you or if it's on a if it's on a baby, you think girl. If it's blue on a boy, you or blue, you think boy. And that's really interesting because it shows that these things that we think are innate, these associations that feel instinctive to us, are in fact anything but. And so we live in a space where gender today could be entirely different from gender ten years ago. And in twenty years, I have no idea what our social understanding or model of gender is going to look. That's exciting because that means that we as individuals and as a collective can take autonomy over how gender evolves as a concept. And we can actually help shift that concept in positive and liberatory ways that support us to be happy, healthy, and included in our community. So my biggest message from this slide is gender is weird, gender is complicated, and gender always has. Now, to go on and, and do the, the, the 10 or five minutes of Gender 101 that I promised I probably would slash wouldn't do, uh, I do want to ground us in some common understandings of trans identity. And so what does it mean to be trans? Um, my favorite thing to this is that it means something different to each person. I have an empirical, you know, broader definition for transness, and that is being trans means that you identify with a gender different than you were assigned at birth. Now, to you know, zero in on that with a more concrete example. If you were born and the doctor walked out of the doctor's office and had a little child swaddled in blue and said, it's a boy. In that moment, the doctor is assigning a gender. Assigning a gender isn't just, uh, you know, a cursory thing that you do. It is a thing that has deep meaning in a society inundated with gender roles. And so from that very instant, that child is going to be told, you need to play with Barbies versus trucks. You need to wear this color versus that color. And everywhere you go as a young parent, you're probably going to have people asking weird questions about your kid's gender. Now, I'm not going to get into the space of, you know, do kids have genders? What does it mean to have gender neutral kids? And I think there's a lot of power and potential in those conversations. But regardless, all of us come into a space where our kids are inundated with these messages. Being trans at the end of the day simply means that that doctor was wrong in that moment. They made a guess. They said, this child is a boy. And if you grow up and you say, actually, that doesn't work, be it it barely works or it almost works, you fall under the trans umbrella. And so if you identify as something other than a boy or a man, you would have the right to describe yourself as trans. On the other hand, if you were assigned female at birth, so the doctor walked out and said, oh, it's a girl, and you grew up and you didn't identify as a girl or a woman, and you identified as a different gender or maybe no gender whatsoever, you also fall under the trans umbrella. Now, a lot of the time, folks have a lot of assumptions around gender that they, in, that they put on trans people. They usually blame that on the fact that we're in a time where we all have a lot of gender anxiety. 
And I actually, I don't see that term used in academic context and I kind of like not coined it myself, but use it in this way myself. To describe the insecurity that all of us are feeling in a world where gender is changing and where some of us feel like it's moving ahead without us really knowing what's going on. And so in those moments of gender anxiety, we often put expectations on trans people that if we ever applied them to cis folks, we would acknowledge as being fundamentally sexist and problematic. And so, for example, we have this idea that a trans person, like a trans woman, for example, so somebody who looks like me or who identifies like I do, um, that they have to look a certain kind of way. They need to have like gorgeous hair like I do. They need to have really like, nice lipstick. We need to know to be able to speak in a voice that will not have people thinking that we're trans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I want to come back to the idea that the only determining factor for if somebody is or is not trans is that own person's conception of their identity. There is no caveat to that statement. There is no list of criteria, no boxes that you need to check. Being trans does not inherently mean that you are accessing hormones or accessing medical interventions. But we also need to make sure that we afford trans folks access to universal health care and access to medical interventions like surgical procedures and like hormones that are backed by best practices and backed by medical institutions that we know are important to trans folks for being able to live authentic, safe, healthy, and happy lives. Now I'm gonna zero in on three core concepts that I think are just useful to ground us around gender. The first of which is gender identity. That is your own internal sense of who and what your gender is. If you're not a trans person, you probably didn't think about that idea much. Like you probably are just like, I was always this way. And like, yeah, it's a gender. I, I guess it's a thing. Um, and, and that makes sense. That's actually true for many of us. It's also true for a lot of trans folks who sit there and be like, what is gender identity? I just know what I'm not. Um, I like the idea of gender identity, but I also think it's slightly limited because I actually can't tell you what my gender identity is. I know I'm not a man. I know I'm like 99% of the way towards being like a woman, but I also know that I like being in a space of neither two. So if I really get into it, my gender identity is non-binary and trans feminine. But most people don't need to know that. They just need to know to use she and they pronouns to describe me. And then to use my name to describe me. In that so gender identity is your own sense of your gender. Gender expression is everything around you. It's everything external to you. It is a weird combination of both gender roles. You know, we live in a world where things are coded to have gendered meaning, even though we know that they shouldn't. And it's also how we exercise agency over how we express our gender to the world around us. So I choose to have really nice hair. The genetics did help. Um, I choose to wear lipstick. I choose to exist in a space where my gender expression is what it is. And so gender identity is internal sense of self. Gender expression is how we communicate it to the world and how society perceives it. And then lastly, of course, we have biological sex. And I usually emphasize that biological sex is relevant in two particular instances, nine times out of 10. Those two are one, when you are hanging out with your primary care physician and chatting about healthcare and health related stuff. And two, when you are engaging with sexual partners. And outside of those spaces, outside of those instances, most of how society operates is based off gender rather than physical anatomy. And if you don't understand, and if that's a little bit of a weird thing to jump around in your head, that makes sense. Because for a long time, society has blended sex and gender. In doing that blending, 
they have created this idea that you know all women have vulvas and that all women need access to reproductive health services. Well, we know that's not actually the case. We know that um, not all women need access to reproductive health services uh, and that folks who aren't women can also get pregnant. And so we know that biological sex isn't exactly as useful as we think it is. And that a lot of the time when we ground ourselves primarily in our, like, do you have these bits or those bits, we leave out people and experiences that deserve access and need access to those spaces. And so that is a challenge to all of us in gendered spaces and in gender-based work to think critically about who are we talking about here and how are we making sure that the folks that we want to engage in this conversation are the ones that we're inviting into this. Now, you have heard and used the term cis a couple times. Um, if you haven't heard the term before, it is a broad, a broad term to describe folks who aren't trans. So if you were uh, born and the doctor said it's a boy and you grew up and you were like, yeah, that's fine, that works. You could call yourself cis. If you grew up and you, the doctor said you were a girl and you grew up and were like, yes, this is me, you could call yourself cis. Cis exists largely so that we can understand how power operates in different spaces. That's not to say that people who are cis have, you know, fundamental privilege over everybody else, but it's rather to say that similar to other identities, such as being a white person or a middle-class person or an able-bodied person, being cis affords access to certain kinds of power and privilege. Largely, that power and privilege is through omitted violence. So you don't notice your cisness because you're not targeted because of it. Whereas trans folks know our transness because we're targeted due to transphobia. And so cis means your gender identity matches the gender you were assigned at. Lastly, on this front, I want to encourage all of us to explore, explore and embrace diversity within and beyond trans identity. Trans people have a billion different ways of thinking about our identities. I think of my identity very rarely, actually. Like, I, I don't sit down and think, huh, what is, wh when did I become trans? Like, am I trans? Like, what does this mean? Um, I know that I'm trans. I know what my gender identity is. But many folks have different ways of thinking about that. There are some trans folks who, I, who perceive their gender as associated with being born in the wrong body. I can make space as a trans person for individuals that have different narratives around their transness than I would, as long as those narratives don't deny my own. And so if you're engaging and working with trans folks, it's very important not to talk to them as if you know their experiences better than they do, and to ensure that you're allowing them to define and describe their identities on their own terms. And your role in those moments, more than anything else, is to reflect language back to those individuals. Not to say, oh, this is a better word, actually, but to say, that makes sense. I'll try to use that term, and I'll ask you any questions if I'm unsure. And by making that space, we can better respect individual agency and autonomy for folks of all gender identities. So I'm going to come back to gender-based violence. Uh, I love the power and potential of the term gender-based violence. Um, and I'm going to start by you know, reading the federal government-approved definition for GBV and then walking through why I love this definition. So what is gender-based violence? It is violence based off gender norms and unequal power dynamics perpetrated against someone based off their gender, gender expression, gender identity, or perceived gender. It takes many forms, including physical, economic, and sexual, as well as emotional abuse. I love this definition for a variety of ways. I think every definition could be better, and I don't know if this one is comprehensive or perfect, but I think this is useful because it really helps us connect the dots between different forms of oppression. 
we're not just talking here about sex or about gender in one particular context. We're talking about gender norms. We're talking about power dynamics. And that allows us to think more critically about the ways in which different folks are impacted by different kinds of gender-based violence. We also have both gender identity, perceived gender, and gender expression. And those are useful because a lot of the time, folks in public don't actually know the gender identity of the folks that they might be harassing. So if I'm in public and somebody's calling me a slur or catcalling or harassing in any way, shape or form, they don't know me, they don't know my name, they don't know my physical anatomy. A lot of the time we experience violence based off how our gender is perceived rather than how we identify our gender. And that component gives us a lens to be able to think about the experiences of a trans man in public wearing a dress and how that is an interesting intersection of different forms of violence. You've got misogyny based off a perceived gender. You've also got you know, discrimination based off that person's gender expression. So we've got issues in terms of how that person is presenting themselves. And you've also got issues around gender identity because this is now a trans person who's being harassed and their gender identity is maybe not the reason they're being harassed, but it is nonetheless actually a denial of that gender identity for them to be getting impacted by a misogyny, for example, because it's weird for misogyny to impact somebody who doesn't identify as a woman. And so GBV actually allows us to capture some of that nuance and complexity in a way that hasn't always been able or hasn't always been afforded to us through language of violence against women, for example. Not that that language isn't impactful and powerful in and of itself, but that maybe we need language that can more carefully and with greater space for complexity articulate the realities of different forms of violence on this land. So when we unpack GBV a bit better or a bit more closely, as I said, it can allow us to connect some of those dots between different forms of violence. My favorite example is homophobia. A lot of the time we, when we talk about you know, uh, violence and patriarchy, we omit 2S LGBTQ communities and that's a common issue. That is something our movements and our systems are working on and working to strengthen and improve. Um, but at the same time, we often don't acknowledge the different ways that gender is weird and that gender violence rears its head. So for example, if I'm sitting here and talking about homophobia and thinking about homophobia directed at cisgender gay men, I can connect that to gender-based violence by thinking about how cisgender gay men are socially constructed as feminine how the fact that they're constructed as feminine is part of how we devalue them and is actually an integral part of homophobic violence because it is co considering that they are feminine in theory and therefore deserving of male control and dominance. And that is really interesting because what that tells us is that we can't end homophobia without also eradicating sexism and gender-based violence. And so there you see the magic of gender-based violence being able to connect those dots allow us to respond to systems of violence with a greater understanding of what and who we're talking about. Gender-based violence is also not just one thing. It looks and feels different when it targets different people. And I think that we often omit that component too. And I'm gonna get into that more in a moment. To start, we could get into the context and the connection between trans communities and gender-based violence more precisely. I want to ground us in the ways that gender-based violence impacts trans We know that each and every one of us in this world is impacted by GBV in different ways, and it shifts based off the power and privilege we hold. 
So for example, I am a white trans person. I'm a white trans feminine person. Trans feminine folks experience some of the highest rates of public harassment and street violence. At the same time, I'm white and I am protected by the fact that I'm white. My whiteness affords me respectability. My whiteness affords me uh, power and ideas that I need to be and I'm deserving of protection. Those are things that nuance my experience as a trans feminine person experiencing violence in public. I know that I am not likely not to be murdered in public. That is not something that all trans feminine folks can say. And so we need to be able to look at how we are both protected and oppressed by different forms of violence. So when it comes to GBV specifically in trans spaces, here are some statistics that I think are useful to ground ourselves. We have 84% of trans folks in Canada avoiding at least one public space. That might be being in public and walking down the streets or accessing a bathroom or accessing a place of work or accessing a community center. Whatever that may be, 84% of trans folks avoid at least one public space. We also know that 70% of trans young folks have experienced sexual harassment and two thirds report discrimination based off their gender identity. We also know that 48% of trans folks in Canada make under $30,000 a year. Now that might not sound like gender-based violence, but if we think about the fact that many trans young folks are ousted from their homes because of their gender identity and their perceived gender, they end up homeless and street involved, we can actually see how gender-based violence is one of the most significant determinants of health for trans young folks because of the fact that GBV results in ruined family relationships and therefore in homelessness and therefore delays access to employment or education and ripples out alongside other issues of employment discrimination and you know having a hard time leaving the house to drop off a resume because you're going to get misgendered every step of the way we can see how those connections how gbv directly results in higher rates of poverty in our communities we also know that gender-based violence uh, or we can also think about gender-based violence in terms of the daily experiences of trans folks we can think about misgendering. So the use of the wrong pronoun or name to refer to a trans person who uses a different pronoun or different name. We can think about street harassment. We can think about denial of access to services, employment discrimination, and more. Even when we think about you know, COVID-19 and the COVID-19 response, we have evidence that says 10.9% or 10.8% of trans folks have experienced discrimination accessing testing and vaccination services. I'm, I'm happy it's not higher. I was low-key expecting it to be like 70% because I'm a pessimist. But even then, 10% of folks who are trying to go get tested are having bad experiences. What do you think that does to their likelihood of going back? What do you think that does to their likelihood of going back if they have symptoms? What do you think that does to their likelihood of actually heading to the emergency room or calling their local public health unit when they need access to care? And so those moments of gender-based violence through misgendering and dead naming and lack of inclusive care directly result again in trans lives lost and in trans folks having a harder time than they have. So one of the dangerous things that, I, I, that we do when we talk about trans communities that I'm always cautious and concerned about is our tendency to homogenize power. We have a tendency to presume universality of experiences and equate the experiences of others with our own. And so I wanna talk about transmisogyny. Transmisogyny is what we describe as the unique intersection of transphobia, so hatred of trans folks, 
and misogyny, hatred of women. It is not just one plus the other, but is a unique combination of both. And one thing that I bump up against um, that is often done with the best of intentions, but without fully understanding what is being, and, and, and the potential harm being committed, is folks who aren't trans, presuming that the experiences of violence that trans people face are the exact same as the experiences of violence that they face. We know that that's not true. We know that the experiences of, for example, a white woman in public are going to be very different from those of a racialized black or indigenous woman. We know that experiences are different, but nonetheless, we have this part of us that is not processing that and therefore making equations that maybe we shouldn't. I have had folks like welcome me to womanhood when I complain about street harassment and gender-based violence. And that doesn't sit right because A, I've been here. I'm not new. I am not like, I didn't wake up to womanhood 20 seconds ago when you're presuming a lot about my gender identity and about my experience of gender in saying welcome to womanhood. But in saying, you know, all women face that, you're also removing the unique intersection and the unique experiences associated with that intersection. I know that cis women experience a lot of violence in public. I know that women experience a lot of violence in public because I live it as well every day. But I can guarantee that walking in public with me, for example, is gonna be very different than walking in public with another cis friend. I have even had trans folks in my life who aren't, don't identify as trans women or trans women folks who have been shocked when they have accompanied me in the streets of downtown Ottawa. When trans women and trans women and folks experience harassment, it is not just catcalling, and not to say that catcalling is a just anything, but there is a particular dose and weird cocktail of loathing combined with the individual's often own self-loathing of the person doing the violence. There is also, there is a fetishization component. There is a disgust component. And those things, while components of those exist in different cocktails and mixes, when all of us experience catcalling and then public violence and street harassment, are not necessarily the same. I have a fiance who is a trans masculine person. And my fiance literally was scared to go in public with me when we got together because of the amount of public attention that just me existing in public drops. But when I go outside, I don't think there's a time I can leave the house for more than 10 minutes without noticing people noticing me. They're not just noticing me, they're looking at me. They're looking at me like I'm weird and strange. A lot of the time I have folks look and then look away and gossip to the person beside them and say things that aren't particularly nice and maybe they laugh and maybe they give a weird look. Those are examples of distinct ways that gender-based violence impacts trans feminine folks and trans women. Again, those experiences are complicated. They are not entirely different from those of cis women, but there are layers and levels to it. Another example that I think is important to share is that there is a greater degree of likelihood that folks will acknowledge violence against cis women in some contexts. And that's not to say that that's always the case, and that's definitely not the case more often than not. Bystander intervention is a thing that we don't do well enough and we need to be better at. But I also have had people harass me in the streets of downtown from moving vehicles, yelling slurs, and had the folks around me ignore it happen. So we often invisibilize violence enacted against trans people. We often pretend we don't notice it, or we ignore it altogether because we don't want to address it. 
And so in public space, that is another example of how, how cis folks can actually intervene and support trans folks in those moments, not necessarily by going up to somebody and saying, you're a bigot, how dare you use the wrong pronoun? Because that's not necessarily productive, but to recognize the violence that happened, to acknowledge it at the very least, because so often that violence is not acknowledged as the violence that it is. When I leave the house every day, my safety is always top of mind. I don't think about, I don't go out to a bar without thinking of how I'm going home after. When I moved to a new community and I moved a couple months ago, I am very, very careful about where I go at what hours, because if I'm not, things could happen that are dangerous. And that is indeed the case for many folks, be they woman or not woman, be they cis or not cis, but it is not the case in the same ways or necessarily to the same extent in different contexts. So how do we support trans folks impacted by gender-based violence? Like you've, you've sat there, you've, you've digested everything and you're sitting and you're saying like, okay, like what do, what do we do next? BBB is bad, we need to support trans folks. Where do we and how do we do that? As I said a moment ago, acknowledge it when it happens. Even if it's, it's the smallest of things, you don't need to, you know, I don't need a counseling session after getting harassed in public. Like, through it enough, I've paid enough counseling dollars to be able to handle it myself, but acknowledge it. That can be as much as I'm sorry that happened, saying that to your, your friend or your colleague as you're walking by and after you've gotten out of the space. It can be as much as, you know, pulling your friend along with you and rushing the hell out of there. It can look and be a lot of different things, but the very act of acknowledging it in a world that invisibilizes violence against trans women and trans feminine people, against all trans people, acknowledging it matters and naming it matters. You can also proactively plan to protect and support trans folks. What I mean by that is, especially if you're in service provider spaces or in organizing spaces, you should think about the unique kinds of violence trans people face. One of the best things that a coworker ever asked me after a late night staff meeting was, how are you getting home? Because that showed that this person realized that it was 9 p.m. on a Friday night and that I lived in the downtown core and it was gonna be a walk for me to get back to my place. And that person realized that that probably is not super safe for me. And yes, again, it's not going to be super safe for many of us, but that the experience of somebody like me in that kind of space means that I am a little bit more likely, unfortunately, in some contexts to get experiences of harassment. And so that moment of asking and checking in and safety planning showed me that this person was thinking about my experiences and showed me that I could trust that person to be there for me when I needed them most. If you work in service provision and if you're working to address gender-based violence. Let's imagine you are helping a, a, a trans person find access to affordable housing and you go see a landlord. Are you ready for if that landlord says something terrible? Are you ready to protect your and support your trans friend without putting them on the spot or making them feel worse in the moment? Do you know what they want you to do to respond if somebody says something icky? You should ask trans folks those questions. Check in with trans folks around how they want you to respond to the violence they experience. If I'm in public and I'm getting harassed, the worst thing you can do is go after the bigot yelling at them. Because guess what? They're not gonna come for you. They're gonna come for me. And it's my safety in that moment that's gonna be put in greater jeopardy. And so my approach is, your job as a cis person is to help me get the hell out of there. It's to help me leave, to help me stay safe, because my safety has to be more important than calling that man a bigot. Yes, he's a bigot. He is also one of thousands. And my safety has to come first in that moment. It's harm reduction, pure and simple. 
You can also review, if you work in the organizational context, review your programs and policies to ensure trans inclusivity. You can make sure that you have a stance on gender neutral washrooms, that pronouns are actually implemented in your organization in a way that is intentional and consistent so that trans folks can ensure that, that the names that they use and the pronouns they use to describe themselves are respected. You can make commitments and statements in support of trans people and explicitly welcome trans folks of all genders to access your program. I know that gets tricky and I would actually challenge all of y'all to sit back and ask at what point would you be willing and at what point do you think it's okay to turn around away a person accessing care? Because it is my firm belief that a trans man should have access to reproductive health services. It is my firm belief that a trans woman, even if she has a beard, has full rights to access a woman's shelter because it's not about her gender expression, it's about her gender identity, and it's also about the space that we know she's going to be safest accessing services. At. A trans man, probably not gonna have a good time in a men's shelter. Have you met men? Not to be mean to men, men are great in many ways with great complexity and nuance. And so that also obligates us to think about what it means to be in gender-based care and gender-based services, and to reflect on how we can ensure that we're actually providing care to the most marginalized, and to those who often have nowhere else to turn. I live in a world where I still give my couch to trans kids because those kids don't feel safe accessing housing services. Despite like we've made a lot of progress, we've come a long way, we're getting the ball rolling, there is new opportunities and programs, et cetera. But we still live in a world where people and I, myself and people in my life have to house the trans kids and young adults and trans adults who would fall through the cracks of the existing structure. And we do that without funding, without services, without any of those things, because we know that we have to. And that's community. And that's what community in our context is so often all about. In trans spaces, community is surviving and thriving or trying to thrive. But we need other folks to do that work too. And we need access to gender-based services. You can also advocate for trans-specific responses led by, for, and with trans people. It is a good thing to guarantee inclusivity across your services. That is absolutely essential. I would challenge you to say, if you think you've done it, you probably haven't. And if you've done one hours of an hour long workshop on LGBTQ identities, I would challenge you to revisit that with a 17 hour session and maybe even some ongoing consulting and hiring somebody to help you look at your policies and procedures, because you need to be able to manage a cis person gay angry about your trans inclusive statement. You also need to be able to manage a trans man accessing care and do that in a way that respects his rights without forcing him to disclose that he's trans a hundred times. And so there are things that we still need to do, and we need to keep building that infrastructure. But we also know that trans communities experience particular and unique needs, and that necessitates not only a universal response, but targeted intervention. To say trans folks have unique needs when it comes to housing. What can we do about that? Let's talk to some trans folks in our space and think about a bystander intervention program to support trans folks in maintaining their own safety, or to support cis folks in intervening in that violence more. And so you can advocate for and support trans-specific responses. And finally, you can support trans-led organizing and advocacy efforts. Trans folks are the best positioned to edu educate and inform and respond to the issues impacting our communities. Trans folks are often also excluded from many advocacy and public policy spaces. And so we need organizations and individuals that are championing our causes. We live in a world where everybody seems to have thought, uh, where, we live in a world where so many folks are inundated and, and bought into this idea of Canada as oh so inclusive, oh so wonderful and diverse and liberatory. And that's not actually the case for so many of us on this land. 
I would argue that most folks on this land still are simply surviving rather than thriving. I would argue that this idea of a Canada that is so inclusive and diverse is actually a continuation of colonialism because it hides and clouds the fact that we are continuing to enact violence against the first peoples of this land, against all folks or many folks on this land. And so as we do this work, it is not enough to you know, say that trans rights matter. It is not enough to say that trans inclusion is good. We need folks to be loud. We need folks to be supporting trans-led organizing. I want to be in a world where I don't have to worry about my safety in public. And it is such an oddly selfish thing to focus so much of my advocacy around because street harassment is the biggest barrier in my life every day. It is the biggest drain on me mentally. It is exhausting to worry about your safety every time you leave the house. And I want to live in a world where 16-year-old trans kids are happy and housed with their families, with families that support them. I want to live in a world where trans survivors of sexual violence can access trans-inclusive and trauma-informed services and aren't denied access to gender-based care that they absolutely need. What we need to get there is we need more cis folks to champion these issues, more cis folks to have the hard conversations with their peers and with themselves around our complicity in gender-based violence. If, I, if you walk away with, from this workshop with one thing, I hope it is a passion for introspection, to think about how gender has made the world weird for you, and to process how we are all complicit in taking out assumptions filtered through patriarchy and sexism and transphobia and colonialism, that we enact those assumptions on those around us and allow those assumptions to filter into our work. If we can do that work, if we can unpack our own relationship to gender, it is indeed the gateway to truly intersectional liberatory movements that are supportive of trans and gender diverse folks and all of our diversity. And so in closing, thank you so much for allowing me to join you today. Hope this has been helpful and please let us all keep doing the work, be louder, be braver, be bolder, and let's deliver a feminist tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Faye. Um, that was such a, 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 a sort of broad, but also detailed and diverse sort of un understanding and unpacking of um, trans identity, but also understanding transness and the sort of broadness of even the term transness, I think is something that a lot of folks don't, um, isn't a, a concept that people um, engage with enough. So I really appreciate you taking that time. I appreciate you sharing your personal experiences too. It adds a lot of color and depth to, to this conversation, but it also must take a lot out of you. So I really, really appreciate um, you doing that work and also taking on that, that exhausting task. Um, <laughs> Coffee, it helps, honestly. It just makes everything better. <laughs> That's why it's in your bio. <laughs> um, folks who are in attendance, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any questions? There is the Q&A. I have to say, I um, as you were speaking, I had a few questions coming up, but then the next thing you said would answer it. So... <laughs> I, that means clearly I'm flowing my presentations right, right? Yeah, yeah. I, one of the main things actually, like my the last question, I was like, okay, well, she's not going to cover this. And so I was going to say, so if there was one nugget you want people to take away, um, but you answered that. So that sort of passion for exploration and, and going beyond trans lives matter. Um, it really actually sort of as cis people who are here in this space and especially white cis people who are in this space taking on the task of um, 
elevating the voices of trans people and trans organizations and engaging in these conversations to dismantle transphobia and violence against trans people and understanding this broader conception of what gender-based violence is. Um, fantastic. I'm very glad we have this recorded. Um, I think this is a great piece. Um, folks, are there any questions? So one of the things that was kind of on my mind as we're working with this uh, training that we're developing again on the website. Um, one of the things that was on my mind is often when we're seeing videos of people like intervening uh, virally, it's people like getting involved. And so when you said, it's not gonna come back on the person who's doing the shouting, it's gonna come back on me. You know, as somebody who tries their best to be an ally, like that, that flicked on a light bulb for me. So I was really grateful to hear that. Um, I'm also, the other piece of that is to know that the cost that learning that lesson comes with. Um, so I, again, really grateful for your life experience. I am wondering for people who aren't familiar with people that they see hearing, like if I was to be walking past the situation and I didn't know the person, you know, what would be something I could do in that moment to show that I do respect someone? Um, I want to take attention off of them and help them. Is there another thing I could do? Oh, that's a good question. When it comes to like random folks in public, it, it gets weird and complicated because if, if it's your friend, you can say, are you okay? Like, do you need a hug? Like, what can I do? But when it's a random stranger, it gets weird. Um, what I would say is like, I actually, if something's happening to me in public, if like harassment is happening, I'm probably trying to get out of there. But even just like turning and watching, like that, it's the same thing that we do around like when cops are being terrible, you film them. You film them, you film them, you film them. You do not stop filming them. That isn't the only thing, but I think even just having folks know that this is being noticed, I think that's actually what would have made like the, the most extreme example I have is, you know, a, somebody driving by stopping in front of me on a downtown street and like yelling a bunch of unpleasant things. If somebody had just like noticed that and like even like made eye contact with me and like done a like, like you don't have to have to say anything. Like my, I'm not actually at risk of physical violence in that moment. Like it's not a like this isn't a I need to call the police or I need somebody to intervene because there's physical harm. It's a I am being verbally harassed. And the best thing you can probably do is help me know that I'm not alone in that. And that also shows to me that if it does escalate, there might be somebody there who can help de-escalate or help get access to whatever intervention is needed. Thank you for that. No, thank you. I'm having a hard time. I'm muting today. Um, the world so of Zoom. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, um, I see one quick question around, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, that's what I was going to do. So we're on the same page. Um, I'm just going to read Ashley's question here about helping with trans folks entering the workforce or a new workplace. And I, you know, I, I know this person. And so I know that she's working particularly in helping um, get more women and gender diverse folks into sort of the manufacturing fields um, where, which are typically very unsafe for even cis women. Um, and so maybe what are the certain, certain, what are some things that um, someone um, doing that work could take into consideration or um, do? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I, I think organizations need the training, right? Like you need to make sure your employees are, have knowledge and capacity to support trans folks. If you don't know what a pronoun is, it's hard to have a trans person feel safe in that space. So start with some of that and then just check in with them, right? Like, like trans folks are in every industry and in every sector. Um, a lot of trans folks are closeted. A lot of trans folks are stealth. And when I say stealth, I mean they're folks who are 
who who live as the gender they know themselves to be, but don't necessarily disclose that they're trans. Um, and those folks are in all of our spaces. They're everywhere. And so I think asking and checking in with those folks, if you, if you know them and seeing what they need. Um, I also think encouraging us, and I think, you know, in the context of industry, that's very different, but trans folks are great for jobs that have nothing to do with being trans. And a lot of folks in our, in our communities are pushed into two kinds of, or three kinds of work. Gay work, which is wonderful and I love it and it's amazing and it's all that I do and it's great, but gay work, social service work, and tech work. And those are the three sectors that trans folks are chilling in. And so hire trans folks for business jobs, for customer service jobs, and make sure that if you're doing hiring trans folks into public facing roles, that you chat with them around what to do if something goes icky. I worked in a wonderful feminist sex shop and bookstore in Ottawa called Venus Envy. Um, they model so much of goodness around how to support your trans employees. And one of the best things was, you know, conversations with my manager around what do I do when the, inevitably a, somebody comes in and says a lot of weird things? Because A, it's a sex shop, but also I'm trans in a sex shop and it's downtown. And like that, like have, have, knowing that I have space to respond in the way that I need to in that moment, that I'm allowed to walk off the floor and go and take a break. That kind of thing and making sure trans folks know that if they get misgendered or dead, they don't have to just suck it up. They don't have to just keep going because that's like, Misgendering is a thing that we deal with every day. I don't want to like turn it into the biggest crises because I would care more about not being harassed than I do about having my pronouns respected. But both matter and both hurt in different kinds of ways. And so being able to step out of that space and take time for a moment. I would just go for a smoke when it happened and I'm like walk around the block. I'm good to go. I'm back. Let's keep working. Give folks the space to do that if they need to do that. Thank you. We have time for, well, we don't have time, but I'm gonna ask one quick question if you don't mind, Faye. Um, this person, I think it's a great question. Um, it's an anonymous question, but it's what in your opinion, and it, it's also a gigantic question, you've probably seen it, but what in your opinion in terms of laws or policy at federal, provincial, or municipal levels is most obviously missing to support trans people and prevent violence against them in our society? Oh, that's great. Um, so we've, we've come a long way in the last few years. We have a federal trans rights bill, Bill C-16, that added gender identity and gender expression to the Criminal Code of Canada and the Canadian Human Rights Act. We also have consistent provincial gender identity and gender expression protections across all of Canada. That being said, we have a conversion therapy bill working its way through the House of Commons and the Senate as we speak, and conversion therapy continues to significantly impact trans people. In terms of preventing violence, the, the biggest thing I actually think we need is leadership from the federal and provincial governments in terms of funding and in terms of services. 2S LGBTQ communities are more likely than, are, are by and large struggling. Our communities are just surviving. And the services that we're often safest or feel safest asset accessing are ones that are reflective of our identities. And those services on, in almost every single community are some of the most chronically underfunded services around. I live in Ottawa. We are a city of more than a million people. Our community center for 2S LGBTQ folks has three employees. How can we substantively tackle mental health crises, street violence, gender-based violence, housing, homelessness, abuse, etc., without substantive operational funding so that our communities can do the work and make the change? And that is what I'd like to see from the feds and the provinces and everybody else with big pockets. 
Great answer and a good opportunity to give a little plug for Wisdom to Action's um, queer analysis of the federal budget um, was a fantastic piece. Um, and I, I know that a lot of folks in the feminist movement appreciated that analysis because it was certainly missing in a lot of conversations. I do think we are out of time, but thank you so much, Faye Johnstone, for joining us. Folks, find Faye on Twitter at Faye Johnstone. Uh, she is an absolute fireball with fantastic politics and also adorable ferrets that you might see pictures of on her Twitter. And then also Wisdom to Action is uh, the organization that Faye works with. They do incredible work. They also put out a couple years ago now, I think the Trans Pulse Survey that looks at the experiences of trans youth. And it's an incredible resource, something that I think is great additional reading for anyone who is looking to continue and hopefully you all are engaging with this issue or this topic. Thank you for joining us on the Feminist Shift podcast. You can follow our advocacy work by heading over to thefeministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. Feminist Shift is a capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener-Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge, funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada. This episode was brought to you by the Canadian Women's Foundation, Safe and Stronger Grants as part of our Network of Neighbours initiative.